0: And welcome to episode nineteen of Batman Nightcast, a podcast that chronicles Batman's comic book adventures since nineteen eighty-six during the post-crisis on Infinite Earth's era of DC Comics. I'm Chris Franklin. And I'm Ryan Daly. And we're back to Detective Comics. Yay. Woo. So it's time yeah. yeah. So it's time <laughs> to finally talk part two of Batman Year Two and the artistic debut of Drumroll, please. <laughs> <laughs> Todd McFarlane on the series. Ta-da!
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think. I was like, should we have fanfare for this? Like, the, the audience for this show, I wonder what they're expecting.
0: I, I don't know. It's, it's, well, we'll, we'll get into that, because yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think we need to talk a little bit about our, our history with Todd McFarlane. He's a divisive personality in comics, to say the least, both artistically and uh, personality-wise, I believe, so... <laughs> So where did you first encounter Todd McFarlane, Ryan?
1: You know what? Honestly, it's really funny. I kind of feel like I just missed him, even though I was like right in the sweet spot when he was reaching the, the peak of his personality or the height of the peak of his personality. I mean, the, right when he was. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, just, I'm so tired. <laughs> right. Right. When he was reaching the height of his per, uh, popularity. Oh, my gosh. It it was because it was like in the '90s, and like I was getting into a lot of like Marvel books when he was on Spider Man, uh, and then you know just I, I was right there at Ground Zero when they were launching the Image titles. But the thing is, like Spawn, never really appealed to me. I remember buying and owning three Spawn comics. I think it was six, seven, and eight. For the life of me, I have no memory of actually reading them. <laughs> like, any any awareness I have of those stories, those plots, I have from, like, listening to other people talk about them on podcasts, whether it's, you know, Diablo Frank and the World Spawn Guys have been covering some image books or 90s Comics Retrial with Nathaniel Wainer. I think Michael Bailey talked about the first 10 issues of Spawn. So I kind of vaguely remember, but I, I like, it just, I looked at Spawn and I was like, eh, it's Batman and Spider-Man mixed together. And I would rather read Batman and or Spider-Man than this. Um so that just that wasn't one of the image books that appealed to me going back like when I do think about his work on Marvel and some of this I was getting into like retroactively but I kind of always think of him as okay he had this run on the incredible hulk when peter david was starting that legendary run and as soon as McFarlane left Eric Larson picked up, I think, just one issue, and then somebody else filled in after Eric Larson. But then when McFarlane left Amazing Spider-Man after a while, Eric Larson picked up that run afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, in both cases, I liked Eric Larson more. <laughs> so that's just... Now, I don't love his work on those books, but it's I I do like it a lot more than McFarlane. So when I think of Todd McFarlane, I was like, oh yeah, he's that guy who worked before Eric Larson on those books. <laughs> um, but yeah actually more than anything more than his work in comics which again I kind of I either missed out or just didn't click with I, I think it was just his his toy line like the way he revolutionized toys and collectibles in the 90s I think that is what I primarily think of him as so
0: yeah I mean then McFarlane toys or whatever mm. they call themselves nowadays still going you yeah. know still making Walking Dead and, and uh, Stranger Things and and uh, I got a chief uh, action figure from Stranger Things. The kids got me because I love that guy because he's like middle aged badass, you know. So, yeah, it's yeah, uh, yeah. That, that's true. That I mean, guy's gonna be the new Hellboy too. I just remembered. I know like, it. He got all, he's all cut in now. Suicide Squad,
1: and he's he's gonna be Hellboy now, which looks good. Actually, just yeah. just from like the the promo art that I've seen. But,
0: yeah, I know. It's I like that actor too. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so that's I'm I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I, yeah, it's that's true. I mean, his his toy legacy. I mean, it's kind of weird. Uh, well, I'll backtrack and and, and um, talk about my first encounter with with Todd. I, I actually I went through like Mike's amazing world and just kind of looked at at his um, at his resume there, his body of work, and I know he had worked on Infinity Incorporated, mm-hmm. and I didn't get that book because it was a comic shop only uh, <laughs> series. Um, so I didn't get that, but I did. I think I saw his artwork in a few Who's Who pages, uh, and you know it was it stood out and <laughs> obviously very different. Um, I think the first comic I actually bought that he drew was a fill-in in GI Joe: A Real American Hero number sixty.
1: You're right. Yes. Yep.
0: It's it's got the the. It's oh yeah, like, yeah. We
1: talked about this on one of our, our one of our earlier issues, actually, the, the, on the spinner rack section. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: Yeah, so it's got like Hawk with uh like a shotgun and yep, I think yep. that guy's named Zanzibar. Zanzibar the the
1: dreadnought pirate. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh but he drew the inside. I think it had Chuckles in it. It did. And, it had uh,
1: Chuckles and Falcon and some of the guys yeah. from that nineteen eighty seven wave, yeah.
0: Law and Order and stuff, so, yep. yeah. And uh so it was like so like did not fit G. I. Joe. It was <laughs> the artwork was just weird, especially under that Mike Zek cover, you know. Uh but uh then I think I saw him here, so um, it was like like right on. It's like the same month, uh, or it was like a month before this. He did the GI Joe, and then this came out. And then I had a buddy that was buying the Hulk, and I would read his Hulks, and he showed up in that. But it was really I had kind of drifted in and out of Spider Man at the time, but I picked up Spider Man uh, number three hundred, Amazing Spider Man three hundred, and uh, I, I gotta say I, I I bought into it. I was a total. Todd McFarlane fan at the time I, I just loved I he brought an energy to Spider-Man I felt like it was more Ditko-esque in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and yeah. he had big eyes he had lots of webs he
1: did have the quirky uh, anatomy the weirdness yeah yeah
0: yeah and you know and 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 at the time I liked the way he drew Mary Jane I'll be honest uh, <laughs> so, so so I mean I, I was a fan and I followed him all through Spider-Man into the ad what do they call it the the uh, non-amazing spider-man the <laughs> adjective less spider-man uh and um, you know even though that you know it took you know five issues to tell you know write doom on every you know page like 50 <laughs> times but you know i followed him there and uh, and i actually bought spawn for a while after image started i bought it for a while and and But at some point, I think it's like and – it, and if you're a fan of Todd McFarlane, I don't – if you're still a fan of his art and everything, that's great. And, and I can definitely see – but it's just one of those things that's like I'm not a fan of like hair metal now. You know, I was then, I'm not now. It's like that's what I kind of equate Todd, uh, Todd McFarlane's kind of like the comic book equivalent of my hair metal stage, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not. I can appreciate why I liked it back then, but it just doesn't sing for me now. You know, and um, a- and it is weird that he kind of it's and I, and maybe I'm wrong, and I just don't keep up with uh, modern comics as much, and I don't. But it just doesn't seem like anybody talks about. I, I guess he's is he still writing Spawn? I know he's not drawing it, but they still make Spawn. So, yeah, they do. Yeah. but nobody seems to talk about it anymore and it was so hugely popular for quite some time so it's just kind of weird that it kind of still exists but nobody seems to notice or something or if they, you know it's just not talked about it's weird
1: yeah i think like the the only time i ever hear it talked about is every once in a while todd mcfarlane will talk about how he's trying to make a movie he's trying to reboot the 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 property as a film franchise or something like that and Going low budget or trying to make it more of a horror story, like just different avenues. And it's like, okay, this sounds promising, but you've been talking about this for six or seven years, and we've seen no evidence that it's actually going to happen.
0: Yeah, I think at one point he was supposed to direct it himself or something crazy like that. Yeah, so, yeah, but this is very early, Todd McFarlane. I mean, he had quite a bit of Infinity Incorporated. Actually,
3: I
1: forgot about those, but I did look at a couple of issues of his Infinity Incorporated when I was doing the prep for uh, the Skyman slash Star-Spangled Kid's Secret Origin story, uh, even though he didn't illustrate that story. But just to kind of prep who the characters were and where they were at that time, Um, I think Greg Arugeo showed me some of Todd McFarlane's Infinity Incorporated, which, I don't know, that's probably why I don't talk to Greg Arugeo anymore. (laughs)
0: I think it's it's funny in the in the All Star Companions that Roy Thomas has done. He he covered the Infinity Incorporated series. Of course, he wrote it with yeah, his, yeah. his wife Dan, and uh, he talks about you know you know McFarland coming on the book, and even there he he you know he kind of admits you know Todd was young, his storytelling chops were kind of weak, but he got around it by using you know like a lot of artists do, fancy panel layouts and. And it was it it was energetic, if not competent, you know, uh, which is what we're going to get some of that here, too. Uh, So uh, it's interesting. But yeah, so we have a very young, uh, fairly green Todd McFarlane coming on, which is a big switch from I mean, Alan Davis was still fairly, uh, you know, he was still a a new kind of hot new artist in a way. But he had like a a good decade behind him at this point of, of comic work pretty well, you know, and. And uh, was was pretty well known, especially in England. So, uh, so now we've went from the very polished Alan Davis to the very roughly hewn Todd McFarlane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll discuss Detective Comics number five seventy six.
2: I'm Mister Fixit, and this here is my consigulary Diablo Frank, the Lions' Cogliostro. Same difference. Spawn is one of the most successful comic properties of all time, with best-selling books, animated series, toy lines, and etc. That stinky movie, all the lawsuits over who has what rights. Don't be a comedian, Frank. We got business to handle. We're here to pimp out our new show, Spawn Talk, about Todd McFarlane's cursed anti-hero on his fight against the forces of heaven and hell in a doomed quest to be reunited with his beloved wife, Wanda. No, the show is called The Spawnometer, named after the countdown clock on Al Simmons' Hellspawn Supernatural Power and Undead Lifespan. Yeah, yeah, whatever. And the gimmick is we're covering one issue of the comic per episode in 22 minutes or less, one minute for each page the comic runs. Then we'll briefly look at another Image Comics creator or series in roughly chronological order, reflecting a quarter century of creators' rights opportunities at the greatest publisher in the industry. Then we're going to dump a letter section and some ads at the end of the show, just like Image Comics does. New shows will appear on the Road Spine Podcast feed through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Shout Engine, and the Internet Archive. Until we immediately start blowing our deadlines, just like Image Comics. Shut up. Why do you got to be such a wise guy? That's why you got no friends.
0: Okay, we're back. And before we jump into this episode's issue, we thought we would do a quick recap on Detective Number 575, which was Batman Year 2 Part 1, because it's been several months since we covered that one. Uh, so for anybody who forgot and hasn't gone back and listened to that episode or read the comic in a while, here's what happened in Part 1 of Batman Year 2. In the second year of Operation, Batman is now publicly known as an ally to the police and in particular, new police commissioner James Gordon. Gordon has even had the Bat-Signal created and installed at police headquarters to summon him. Batman's new, cushy status quo is shaken by the return of Gotham's original vigilante, because they forgot Alan Scott, the Reaper. The skull-faced, armed, and armored Reaper returns to sow bloody justice in the streets of Gotham. Little does Batman know that his rival is really Judson Caspian, father of Rachel Caspian, who Bruce Wayne is quite smitten with, despite the protests of their mutual friend Leslie Tompkins and the fact that Rachel is preparing to become a nun. Batman's first encounter with the Reaper is nearly fatal, and as he recovers from that bloody encounter, he vows to fight fire with fire by taking up firearms, and in particular, the very gun that murdered his parents. So now you're all caught up. So we can talk about Detective Comics number 576, and it was cover dated July 1987, On sale April 21st, 1987, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Okay, on the cover, we have the orange background and trade dress from the previous Alan Davis-drawn cover, but everything else is completely different because this is Todd McFarlane and Pablo Marcos. In the foreground, we see the scythe of the Reaper with the bat symbol and chest of Batman's shirt laying across the blade. In the background, Batman stands, his costume in tatters, his gun in his hand pointing at his enemy. So Ryan, what do you think of this one? Uh,
1: Um, (laughs) uh, okay. First thoughts. Okay. It's a cool idea for a cover and not executed. Like I, I just, I am, I am so distracted by the shredded tatters of the Cape and the shirt and everything. Like, like it's, it doesn't look like he was attacked by a guy with a big scythe. It looks like he fell into, like, a pit of wolverines. And, like, just, it's, like, it's, like, shredded. Like, like, what the hell happened to him? Like, that's not damage from a fight. That's like, that's like he fell into, like, some, like, industrial laundry equipment or something like that. It's, what happened? What did, why does he look like that?
0: <laughs> it's ragman dressed as batman <laughs> uh,
1: yeah but like ragman on a really bad day ragman who's fallen down a mountain side so just <laughs> like okay so like he's got he's got the gun okay and he's like holding him his like bloody chest even though we don't really get blood um his we, we do get a sense of like he like the his face is kind of like shocked. There's like teeth gritting and eyes mm-hmm. blood, even though they're like really small kind of in proportion. It's a, it's a cool, it's a striking idea for a cover. But no. <laughs> it's like, can we like airbrush this around the edges? <laughs> Smooth this so the cape looks like, it's like a normal cape? Like, uh, I don't know. What do you think?
0: Oh, we're not going to get any normal capes oh, uh, yeah, the, yeah, that is out no normal capes <laughs> no normal capes darling <laughs> uh, but um i think the cover actually if you're gonna go todd mcfarland to me this looks like todd mcfarland which i have i'll have a point to make about that later uh marcos actually inks it like it's todd McFarlane. you know it is a little extreme uh but it's todd McFarlane, so everything's extreme. Um, Yes, the amount of tatters is ridiculous, and uh, I, I don't I don't hate it though. I, I get I think the image works. I think there's a lot of Marshall Rogers in that Batman head, which is one reason why I think I like it, and uh, the way he draws the ears right there. Um, but it's it's a if you didn't know that <laughs> that that Alan Davis had left the book, when you picked this one up, you had to be like, Oh wait, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> Cause this is totally, this is totally different. I mean, the very, like I said, very polished, very, uh, you know, precise work of, of Davis and is, uh, is gone. And, and now we're into, you know, scratchy heavy metal Batman here, you know I mean? It's, it's, uh, <laughs> That that's what it feels like. I mean, you know, it's it's like went from classic rock to, to speed metal or something all of a sudden. You know, I keep making these musical uh, references. but no, that's, that's what it not feels... bad.
1: That's, that's...
0: <laughs> we were like, you know, we were like like uh, Alan Davis was like Kansas or something, and this is like freaking <laughs> Megadeth or something. You know, it's like. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> that's what's going on here. I, I threw that Kansas thing in there for Shag. Yeah, just have uh, a listen, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. So Casey's listening. Uh, so yeah, that's the cover. Um, I I can't really decide. I don't hate it, but I don't. I see all the problems with it. So I'm not. I'm not really sure how I feel about it. It's, it's just. It's it is what it is, and it's like okay, now things are different. So. um so I guess we should move on. And I will. About-
1: I will say I like the uniformity of the flat orange background. I mean, even though yeah. a blank orange background isn't anything that should be really eye catching or or something to celebrate, but I like that they've decided to kind of go with this theme to keep to tie the the four covers together, and, and we'll see more of those.
0: Yeah, I mean, honestly, if they, it's kind of weird because the the trade dress works to unify it, but it also puts a spotlight on, Ooh, the art's totally different. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Cause, yeah, cause it
0: the trade dress is the same. So it, it works for and against it at the same time. It's just, it's, it's, it's just hard for me to reconcile how I feel about this thing. But, yeah. uh, so maybe we should just move on to the interior. So, yep. uh, <laughs> uh, Batman year two, chapter two deal with the devil. Uh, Mike W Barr was a writer, Todd McFarlane, the penciler, Alfredo Alcala was the inker. Augustine Moss was the letterer, Adrian Roy, the colorist, of course, a Denny O'Neill editor, Batman created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger, of course. Early morning in Gotham, and a platoon of armed police attempt to move convicted gangster Big Willie Galonka to prison early to avoid a media frenzy. Their plans are disrupted by the Reaper, who distracts them with some kind of rigged-up robot sniper contraption on a nearby rooftop. While the police are distracted, the Reaper appears and shoots down Galonka. He murders and injures several policemen before making his escape in an armored car. In the Batcave, Bruce Wayne practices his marksmanship before heading upstairs for another brow-beating session from a disapproving Leslie Tompkins. She's now chastising him for not only being Batman, but for using a gun. Leslie asks Alfred to phone Rachel Caspian and tell her that she won't be able to make their lunch date, but Bruce has other plans for Miss Caspian as he looks over his Batman uniform. At their home, Judson Caspian stares at his reaper armor and then finds his daughter looking over her nun habit. Thinking of how her mother would be proud of her decision, Caspian flashes back. Back to the night, he, his wife, and young Rachel returned from the circus to find an armed thief leaving their home. When Judson attempted to stop him, he was shot, and his wife murdered before their daughter's eyes. He recalls the funeral that followed and the words the preacher read from the prophet Micah, "'Thou shalt eat, but not be satisfied.'" Thou shalt take hold, but shalt not deliver. Thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. Judson snaps back to the present and tells his confused daughter, Whatever I do, I do for you and for her. Later, Rachel arrives at her lunch date, but finds Bruce instead of Leslie. The wealthy Mr. Wayne treats her to some fine dining and ice cream in the park, but Rachel sees through his playboy facade once more, sensing death beyond the disguise. She warns Bruce not to become distant and withdrawn like her father. Bruce believes that perhaps it's not too late for him and the two kiss. That night, Batman appears in Jim Gordon's office and tells him he is going to take down the Reaper alone. He forewarns the commissioner that he will soon curse his name and order his capture. As he swings away, he asks Gordon to remember their friendship, despite what he's about to do. Sometime later, at a nearby airport, Gordon and his men await the arrival of Johnny Heimer, who is flying in from Metropolis for a high council meeting of mob leaders. As soon as Heimer steps off his plane, the Reaper appears. But so does the Batman, disguised as a luggage attendant. When Gordon tries to fire on their mutual foe, Batman blasts the gun out of his hand and tells him to leave before things get serious. Reaper makes his way to the plane and brutally murders Heimer's guard, but Batman manages to protect the mobster. In their battle, the Reaper scythe gets stuck in the wall of the plane, and it appears Gordon and his men have captured their man. But the crafty Reaper blasts the plane's fuel tank and escapes, as does Batman with Hymer. When one of the cops comments that he thought Batman was on their side, Gordon answers, So did I, McGinley. He snaps his pipe, the pipe Batman gave him in two, and finishes, Looks like we were both wrong. At the emergency mob meeting, discussion is all about the Reaper, who is putting a serious damper on organized crime's business. As the bosses bicker back and forth, Batman drops Hymer right into their laps. He declares a truce and suggests they all work together, since he also wants the Reaper, for his own reasons. Mob leader Morgan Jones isn't convinced Batman won't cross them, but the Dark Knight feels the same way. Jones agrees to the deal, as long as Batman works with the man they hired to take care of the Reaper. The hitman admits, The Batman, huh? Never thought I'd be working with you. The Dark Knight recognizes the voice of this man instantly. He turns to see the face that's haunted his nightmares for more than a decade and a half. Joe Chill, the man who murdered his parents. So what do you think? Um, It's part two. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: Yeah, so... The first thing I will say is I, having having been a while since I've read this and, and going into it knowing McFarlane and the reputation and the artist switch now leaving Alan Davis, I was expecting a lot worse. Um, mm. I, I was expecting to just like get to this art and be really just disappointed and – that wasn't the case. The art, for the most part, was easy to follow. Uh, now, I'm reading this story from The Trade. Um, I don't have the original floppy of this issue. So I, I think the coloring, the recoloring on this does a lot to kind of add to the moody, atmospheric sense of some of the scenes, and I think that's well done. I think for the most part in this one, McFarlane keeps the characters pretty close to on model to to the way Davis made them. Um, I think the women, a little bit less so, especially Leslie, she probably looks the most different. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing that I, I really kind of noticed, though, in both action beats is um, McFarlane isn't the best at choreographing the action. Right. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in, in some of these action panels where you're like, uh, mm-hmm, okay. Uh, <laughs> But I mean, it's yeah. I mean, for the art, the art didn't ruin the story. Um, there are just aspects of the story that I don't really care for. Um, mm. So, what, what did you think?
0: Uh, as far as the art goes, it's kind of weird. Where you know, I, I kind of expected looking at it again. I haven't looked read this in a while either. I kind of expected to be more. You know, okay, we're going from Davis to McFarland, but. I guess, you know, I'm very familiar with McFarlane, so I kind of just accept it. But one thing I just don't feel works is Alfredo Alcala's inks over McFarlane. I, I, you know, he's, Alcala was a fantastic penciler. Mm. He did gorgeous work on Conan for years at Marvel uh, after making his mark on the DC horror titles, which you know well. Uh, Like many artists from the Filipino invasion, the mid 70s, uh, he drew the earliest Masters of the Universe mini comics. Um, his, his, his version of Skeletor is so damn haunting <laughs> that Mattel actually made a, a, a head to go with the new, um, Masters of the universe classics. He could swap out and put a, uh, Alfredo Alcala Skeletor head on there. He's got like gnarly teeth and yeah, yeah, yeah. or hollow eyes. He's, he's really cool looking. Uh, so he's a great artist and he actually inked Batman over Don Newton a few years before this for quite a while. And that was a combination that worked because their styles mesh. But I, I just it's like it's not Alcala and it's not McFarland, and it just to me it's like it's like you got Alcala's like heavy brush lines over McFarland's squiggly doodle lines, and it's just kind of muddy looking. I, mm-hmm. I'm just not a. It's it it it's not it's not bad, but it just looks like. You know it, it's like two great tasted well, I don't know about great with mcFarland but it's like two <laughs> it's too good it's a great taste it's two it, very
1: distinctive it, it, tastes,
0: yeah, it's like putting marinara sauce over Chinese takeout you know it's just it's <laughs> like it's just not quite the same you know it, it's it's that's the kind of thing that jumped out me and I was expecting to be like oh it's it's Davis to McFarland. no, it's more like okay, it's McFarland, but he's he's got a very heavy inker that's got a totally different style that's like it's like when they put bill sinkovich over jim apparel all the time it was just like no don't do that that does not work it's like oh stop it you know that's that's what i feel like going on here but uh but yeah i'm with you the art other than a few action beats like you said which we'll talk about when we get to them the art you know as much as i have loved mike w bar's run the story here is There's things in it that just I'm like reading it again, I'm like, huh, this doesn't quite hang together like (laughs) like I thought it did. At the
1: at the end of chapter one, I didn't like the decision to take out the gun that killed his parents and say, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I need to change my tactics or whatever. I didn't like that decision, but I thought I knew where the story was going. Yeah. This isn't where I thought the story was going. (laughs) <laughs> and I don't know where the story is going at the end of this one. Like, what does he use the gun for? Yeah. He uses the gun once in the story to disarm Gordon. He basically shoots Gordon's gun out of his hand so that Gordon won't open fire on the Reaper. And then the yeah. gun disappears. We don't see it in the next like panel, the next pages. I don't know where Batman's gun goes. I'm assuming he puts it away because he doesn't use it to fight the reaper in the rest of that sequence and the at the airport in the plane right and what is his plan what does he want like
0: <laughs> I, and, I don't know <laughs> that's a good that's a good question why does he have uh, to
1: call a truce with the gangsters at the end like I,
0: <laughs> yeah i mean that that part well, let, let's 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 yeah, go through the yeah. story to bring it up because yeah, there's there's lots of the, to go over here, but uh, we do have another front piece. Like each, you know, Batman Year, yeah, yeah. Uh, Batman Year one had one. This one uh, shows Gordon and one of his SWAT officers confronting a horde of demons led by a very stylistic Batman holding a gun and a Skeletor with a wig. So that's cool. <laughs> uh, it's an odd image. Uh, but it matches the story's title very symbolically, and it's not subtle at all. I mean, you know, deal with the devil. Here's a bunch of demons, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's it's fine. It's uh, again, this is like again, it's like you know, now we're into death metal, you know. Here we are. It's uh, or our speed metal or whatever or something. Uh, uh, so the Reaper. When we get to the uh, we get to the the cops going to move Galanka, and uh, the Reaper has some weird robot sniper decoy contraption that, uh, on the roof. It looks like it might be hooked up to a lawnmower or maybe a lunar landing module. I'm not sure. It's hard to tell.
1: <laughs> yeah, that that was my second note. My first note was actually I like that the SWAT guys in this one, at least might company, look like the SWAT team from year one. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're wearing like the same gear, the same color scheme. Uh, as Mazucchelli gave them in Year One, Part Three, so I like that continuity. That that feels pretty good. But then, yeah, when we get to this sniper, it's like this fake sniper is too advanced. It's too high tech. It's got like the it's like like ro- robotic, like it's automated or whatever, and it's like actually like firing a gun and everything to get them. It's like if the Reaper had access to this thing, he wouldn't need to get up close and like he could just like. He could just be a sniper and, like, shoot down at them.
4: Yeah. Like,
1: this <laughs> is one point. of those things where, like, where, what bothers me with the Reaper is, like, why did he, why does he have guns built into his sides if he's just going to go around cutting people? If he's got guns, then just shoot them. So it's, <laughs> like, I feel like there's way too much emphasis. Or way, this fake sniper is just too much. There was too much thought, too much money put into this thing for its objective, for its, for its function.
0: Yeah, it's like the old thing that Mark Wade said about what, you know, Lex builds, uh, Lex Luthor builds a, a $10 billion robot to steal $100,000 out of a bank. Yeah, or exactly. You know? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and what all you, least,
1: all you need is like a, a store mannequin with a broom in a window and it's enough to freak people out. They'll think it's a sniper and they'll start shooting up there or whatever. Like,
0: right, yeah, something like that. Yeah, It's it's – and I don't know if that's like a disconnect between like, um, you know, Barr said it's a mannequin with, a, you know, some kind of a rigged up uh, gun that he has like some kind of timer or something, which, you know, I could kind of buy something like that, but no, he, he draws it looking like it came from, you know, Star Labs or something, you know I mean? It's, it's, it looks like part of cyborg with a hat on and it's, yeah, it's got like an engine built to it. And I just, yeah. It's really weird. Yeah. And, and, and then on top of that, the Reaper you talked about his guns built into his mace. He doesn't use them here. He's got some other kind of yeah. otherworldly looking gun that doesn't look like a real gun, uh, and he shoots uh, Galanka with that. And later on, McFarland remembers that he has the machine guns in the mace, you know, on his hands, but right now he doesn't. So, <laughs> I mean, we do have to remember this more than likely was probably a rush job. So. We we do we do have to remember that and you know I, I mean I will cut McFarland some slack one because he's still very new at this and two because he probably drew it like super quick uh, but, but um, yeah the f-
1: I, the, the, but the fake sniper however he he rigged it to it's it's firing down at them the cops are shouting we're pinned down. They're, like, shooting at it, but it's not real, so it's not dying from their bullets or whatever. Like, this thing is getting the better of what looks like 30 cops. (laughs) That's not a good look for the Gotham City Police Department. But then, yeah, at the end of this, you're right. So the Reaper sneaks up in the last panel of of the second page, or whatever, the second story page. He puts his gun to the head of Galanka. It's right in his face. And then turn the page... And when he shoots him, when he's actually executing, it looks like they're like twenty feet away. Yeah, like and he's shooting him in the back.
0: And, and that panel of them shot next to the the uh, the GCPD uh, SWAT truck. That thing looks like it was you know drawn, Todd drew with his foot. I mean, I'm not I'm not <laughs> trying to be mean, but that's just that's really rough. That's yeah. that's really phoned in. Yeah, uh, you know, obviously, and we see this clearly. The Reaper doesn't mind taking down the police. Which to me squarely puts him not in the anti anti hero camp, but he's he's just a villain. I mean, yeah. if he's willing to kill just policemen who are trying to brutally murder them, then he's not I mean, this guy, you know, he's not the punisher. He's just a freaking villain. Right. I mean, that's that's uh so that seems kinda odd too, because him being so irredeemable and not like Shag, but really irredeemable, although Shag is pretty irredeemable, <laughs> but like really irredeemable makes Batman following his methods even more questionable because this guy is just a flat out psycho killer. I mean, there's no, you know, okay, he's got, you know, he wants to take these criminals down, but he obviously doesn't care who he wastes along the way, you know. Right. So, and the police were just trying to do their job. They were, they weren't like protecting the guy other than just moving him to a, another prison, you know. So it's it, it it's kind of odd that, that that Barr goes there because he's if he's trying to make a Semi-sympathetic. Usually when they have this, the anti-hero, they usually try to make them somewhat sympathetic. You can see their point of view, but right, he just blew uh, it right here. With yeah, this. It's,
1: it's the revenge motivation that you know, his, he's been wronged. We'll, we'll actually get his backstory in a few pages later. Um, But yeah, the whole thing is like, you know, I'm out there, I'm killing the criminals because the cops aren't willing to go to that level. The law is failing us, the law is letting us down, so I'm going to be judge, jury, and executioner. That's the type of standard motive motive for this type of thing. But once you're killing the cops who are just escorting this guy down, it's like, nope, now there's no logic, You, you, you completely... Forfeited any right to to that type of thing. Now you are just being a, a, a psycho murderer, just for the, because you want to kill people. So, and then again, that that page after he starts shooting the cops and he's like slicing at them. When he's escaping in the ambulance, I am trying to like, how is he hitting the driver? Oh yeah, because he's like, it looks like he's smashing him or like punching him in the chest, like with the the gauntlet thing, the spiked gauntlet part with the blade turned the other way, so. I just don't know, like how he's hitting him. Like
0: it's like he broke his wrist as he hits him, or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah there's there's lots of stuff like that in this. That's like you said, the action sequences are are uh, are pretty rough in this one. Um, so yeah, yeah. That was the that was the opening opening action scene, folks. Uh, <laughs> and we get Gordon uh, basically telling the mayor to stuff it because the mayor wants Gordon to come back to some kind of uh, breakfast meeting or something. And Gordon tells him, you'll, you know, stick yeah. the phone where the sun don't shine, which is, you know, a nice little character bit, but kind of, you know, it is, I guess it's to say, Hey, Gordon's in this story and, you know, Batman's getting ready to really piss him off. So <laughs> here's Gordon, you know, <laughs> uh, then we cut to the bat cave and, uh, Bruce is practicing with his gun. He recently pulled out of his, uh, you know, parents, uh, picture frame, uh, and uh, he's an excellent marksman, uh, you know. And and uh, there's even an exchange between him and Alfred. He goes, "I I, I wasn't aware you'd been keeping up your marksmanship." And Bruce is like, "I haven't," you know. So it's like, "Oh, he's just that damn good," you know. So uh, and Bruce has on a Harvard University shirt, which is interesting hmm. as he as he puts his robe on. It's like, wait a minute, I thought this Bruce Wayne didn't go to college. He traveled abroad, and you know, so. Um but okay, whatever. Apparently went to Harvard briefly or something, I you know, so
1: <laughs> Can I ask a question about the um at the top of that page where he's shooting the, the different targets or he's shooting the target? Mm-hmm. We see a close up of the gun firing Blam and then yeah. he shoots five shots into the the heart of the you know, the dummy, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of like forms like a, or six shots. Really, it's like a, a circle around the heart, and then one dead center. Yep. Why does each shot get a different sound effect? Oh, and I, and I don't mean its own. I mean a, a each one is different. The yeah. first shot goes blam, and then when it, we see the close up of the bullets hitting the target, zing, patui, spating, vri, bang.
0: Like, yeah.
1: It's bullets. Like, why, why don't they all sound the same?
0: It sounds like they're ricocheting off stuff too. I mean, if they're making yeah. different noises, that's what you would. Yeah. But if you yeah, I, I like Petwee and spatang.
1: But if you if it, Bruce is just chilling in the Bat Cave and Alfred's wandering around, you probably don't want a lot of ricochets,
0: right? It's like a Christmas story when Ralphie stupidly goes out and, and puts his target on a metal sign. You know. It's, <laughs> All right, Black Bart, now you get yours, you know. So (laughs) he puts it in front of the giant penny and it bounces off and kills (laughs) Alfred. (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. He doesn't have the giant penny yet, probably. So, Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. This, yeah, and it's like, okay, he's just, is he just playing around like, is he missing the heart, the center of the heart, intentionally, and, and then finally just putting it in, or is he just he's getting close and then finally he gets it? I don't I don't know, but either I mean either way, it's probably each one's like a kill shot. So
3: nice grouping.
0: Why would he be that good with a gun? I mean, really, you know? I mean, it's uh, I mean later they we find out that he worked with Henry Descartes and. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so he might have trained him to use firearms more, or even though Bruce didn't want to. He might have insisted that he did if he's going to learn other stuff from him or or something. You can you can put that in your in your backstory and make it work. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. We get we get upstairs and we get Leslie. And uh, so did you notice this last time Bruce wanted Leslie to move into the penthouse atop the Wayne Foundation that's being built? She told him she couldn't live that far away from her clients. So now she's sleeping at Wayne Manor? Does (laughs) she live there? Last issue, it didn't seem like she lived there. But now she's going to go out and look for apartments as if she had lived there. And she's so disgusted by Dirty Brucie that she's, you know, she's leaving. So I don't know where this version of Leslie, again, we've had this discussion last time. It's like. She's just there when Barr needs somebody to nag Bruce about what he's doing. Basically, it's, it's.
1: yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Something was
1: something struck me as off about that. Well, h- how much time has passed? The last time we saw him, he he was like bleeding to death or whatever. Maybe she came to treat him and she stayed overnight, but he doesn't look like he's hurt now.
0: No, and I mean he's. It, it feels like there's been at least at least a few days, if not like a a week or two since. Last issue at the end. Cause that's he,
1: that's he, why, he, if this is year two, we need the date stamps like year one had.
0: Yes. Yes, we do. Yeah. Because it doesn't, you know, like you said, she might have just, maybe sometimes she spends the night there, maybe on the weekend or something, she doesn't have to be at the clinic or something, but. It just it just seemed weird to it's like we don't really know. It's like Leslie's just this, you know, she's the his, you know, Jiminy Cricket that just appears whenever, you know, he needs to because Alfred basically does not serve that purpose in this story at all. You know, he just kind of he just kind of is there in the background because he has to be. And it's like bars insisting on using Leslie in this role when he really could have just used Alfred in this role, you know. Because Barr loves using Leslie Tompkins and he's came up with this new version of Leslie Tompkins. And a lot of the bat you know, for years the bat offices basically forget Leslie. Even though Denny O'Neill created Leslie Tompkins, they would kind of forget her and then, okay, occasionally we'll bring her back up, you know. Right. And and then of course they did in that horrible war games business, but we won't get into that. Uh <laughs> they remembered her then, unfortunately. Uh, but <laughs> Um, but yeah, so it's 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 another weird little strange thing with Leslie, and and then when you know she says, well, you know, Alfred, call Rachel and tell her I can't make it. I'm looking at apartments. But then Bruce looks a bit too happy in the panner where he tells Alfred he'll take care of Rachel. <laughs> he, he's twiddling his fingers. It almost looks like, like excellent.
1: You know it's a creepy ass face.
0: It's like, ooh, I'm gonna go taint the nun. Ooh. Oh, we need to wait till we get to that part. I've got some things to say about that because it's yeah. just like, oh, okay, you know, uh, there are some nice artistic bits. I think the the panel where Bruce says he thinks of what his father would say every day, you know, and it, that's a good strong Bruce Wayne shot. That's you know, that know, is yeah. it
1: something about like it might be his jaw? And I mean, it's a narrow panel, so we don't get the full face. But when I look at him in kind of that profile, to me, that looks like a Howard Chaikin face or something like
0: that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. You see that? Yeah. yeah. I can see it. Yeah, something it does look about, like, very shaky.
1: Yeah, the the jawline and like the, the eyebrows and the hair or something.
0: Uh, it, the only difference is, is in the other panels, Leslie's not half naked in lingerie. That's the only reason <laughs> it's not hair shaking, And nobody wants to see that, but, you know, okay.
1: Uh, <laughs> you know what some uh, of our listeners do? <laughs>
0: well, they might. You know, okay, that's fine. Whatever you're into, it's okay. We got some
1: real weirdos who listen to this show. <laughs>
0: Uh, I did. I did think it was a nice little bit that uh, Bruce. Bruce looks at his Batman uniform. Of course, Alfred brings it up in the house, which is like, isn't that? That's kind of problematic. Uh, but uh, he looks at his Batman uniform. You cut to Judson; he's looking over his Reaper armor, and then you cut to Rachel, and she's looking over her habit. That's a nice bit of yeah. you know story symmetry there. Um, you know, I think somebody like Davis would have handled it. He would have like put a pin on it. So it was more like, this is the exact same thing that three people are doing it. Davis is great at that multiple panel thing and making you, ah, that's the same thing, you know, so it's, but it still works. It's, it's, it still works. And, uh, then we get the, uh, the flashback, uh, to Judson Caspian to the Reaper's origin. It's of course very similar to the Wayne murders. Uh, Barr likes that, you know. He did the player on the other side with the wrath in yep. Batman Special Number One. His parents, his parents were murdered the same night that Bruce's were, actually by Jim Gordon because they were criminals that Gordon shot uh, in a in a robbery. Um, but uh, so I don't know if this is the same night, but uh, I doubt <laughs> it. But uh, let's hope not. Uh, but but uh, it's it's kind of weird. It's a mixed bag the, the art in this because the the huge we get a huge head of, of Judson Caspian in the background as these panels kind of float around his face and the face of him is very McFarlane it's mm-hmm. very it's it doesn't it seems like unhindered McFarlane looks like something out of Spider Man in, mm-hmm. in a year or two uh, but when Mrs Caspian gets shot the panel where she's falling over I don't know what's going on with Rachel it looks like she's either she's falling too and her mom's about to crush her or she's floating away with the balloon she's holding. I can't <laughs> I can't tell what's going on there. Uh, it's really strange. It, I think it's a case where Todd decided to get, you know, he started to get real artistic, show this huge close-up of, of Judson, but then he limited the panel space he had to show the action, you know. And so things got cramped together, and now it looks like the little girl's going to float away with the balloon on top of just watching her mom get killed. So it's... <laughs>
1: So yeah, uh, yeah, they're, they're completely. She's completely absent of gravity. It kind of looks like she's diving for cover or something, and proportionally, it looks like she's going to land on the ground. and The mom is going to land on top of her. Like,
0: and I don't even know where Judson is in this panel. Like, it doesn't even show him. He's like been shot, and it's like he's like ten yeah. miles away from him now. Yeah, he's something. not even on the
1: ground next to his his dying wife or anything. It's
0: yeah, it's, it's not yeah, it's not. Handled really well, especially after we've seen both uh, Mazzuchelli and Davis handle the Wayne murders, you know, really well the the way, you know, it's like there was clearly a template here, Todd. Why don't you just follow that? You
1: know, know, uh, I think that I think these panels have kind of like made me I, I think one of the things that's been bothering me about Judson and the Reaper and this idea has been his age. And the way mm-hmm. Davis before and now McFarland draw him, he he looks too old to be a formidable physical fighter against somebody like Batman with Batman's training. Mm. Because I I don't know to me they make him look like he's like sixty or seventy years old, but I think I think we we kind of need to like approach this more like the Marissa Tomei Aunt May, where like if you think at this point. Batman is probably 25, 26. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, Rachel, what do we think? Rachel might be anywhere from like 19 to 23 or something like that. You know, he could be just 20 years older. I mean, Judson could be 45, maybe early 50s or something like that. I I mean, he could be like the Ben Affleck Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Um, And I I think maybe he needed to look a little bit more like that. Whereas Mm -hmm. here he's... Yeah, I, I think he looks more like a contemporary of Alfred or somebody older or something like that. And it's it's hard for me to, to make the, the adjustment that this guy could kick the crap out of Batman.
0: Yeah, and I mean when they show him – they show actually show him – uh, at the funeral and he's got his head down, but he's got a receding hairline, which, you know, he can still be younger, but he usually in comics. That means he's older. Right. Um, and he's got white eyebrows, which is probably just a coloring mistake, but it's cause it's kind of weird. He's got like strawberry blonde hair, like his daughter, but he's got white eyebrows. So he looks, he looks like he's like in his forties. Good here yeah, at least. And then he's, so now he is in his like sixties, you know, like you said so, but he doesn't have to be, which is, yeah, I don't know. And, and, the, the funeral man, the, the preacher, I mean, he's just he, a, a distraught husband. I just caught him. that too. He's just... Cut down in the prime of his life. The dude's sitting right there, Padre. I mean, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you just throw him in the grave and get it over with, you know? I mean, good gravy. What yeah. A...
1: <laughs> yeah, the way that sounds like – I do think cut down in the prime of life is supposed to be referring to the wife. But like the sentence structure, the way it's written – Um, yeah, but she leaves behind a loving daughter, Rachel, a distraught husband. Call a a little bit more attention to it.
0: I I think, but it's a comma after Judson cut down down in the the prime prime of his life. life. Unless the letterer screwed up and it's supposed to be a period, he's saying he was cut down in the prime of his life. And he is in a wheelchair here. Yeah. So, so he's, you know, I don't know if he's like,
1: look at this poor bastard.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, let's just put a bullet in his head and get it over <laughs> yeah, with you know It's like good gravy people somebody give him
1: a hug he has no reason to live
0: <laughs> yeah <It's> just <laughs> I was like wow no wonder he like became the serial <laughs> killer yeah I got nothing else to do might as well go kill a bunch of people and if I get killed maybe then you know okay. get some kind of death wish or something I don't I don't know but uh, <laughs> wow okay Uh but uh, then we cut to, after that scene, we move on to Bruce, who has decided to make time with the lady that he knows is going to become a nun. And and he, it, using
1: using Leslie Tompkins' unavailability as his excuse. Yeah, this isn't creepy at
0: all. No, and it's not like he he has – it's very obvious by the crazy look he had on his face and the way he's acting here. He is in smooth operator mode with uh, with Rachel, Rachel, and uh, (laughs) had to do it. Sorry. Uh, And uh, he is romantically interested in her. And she told him, I'm getting ready to take my vows and become a nun. But Bruce doesn't respect her religious beliefs. (laughs) No, he wants to convince her either not to become a nun or to go ahead and deflower her so she can't be a nun or something. (laughs) It's like, holy cow, Bruce, really? (laughs) And I, I don't, if they had set up that they knew each other when they were younger and they had like, they had dated or he always longed for her, they had an attraction that they never acted upon or something. And then he met her again. And he's like, Oh, here's my chance. Here's this This lost love that I now I can I can be with her, blah blah blah. And then she said, Oh, I'm gonna become a nun. Then I could kind of see why he would be like, I don't want her to be a nun, I want to be with her. But he met her once. Once that we know of. And he's like Mission, defeat the Reaper, deflower the nun. You know, it's like
1: (laughs) Right. And I even felt like there was that moment in in chapter one like when he learned about her childhood trauma when he learned about her mother being murdered. Like, They had that connection, and it felt like this was somebody that Bruce could connect with and be friendly with and mm-hmm. kind of have that emotional connection and everything. But in this scene, we don't get it. It's just he's going through the motions because he wants to sleep with her. Right. like, There's nothing of that, that real intimacy of the shared loss that they, that they have in common. This is just the next scene of romantic subplot. And it's, it's just kind of meh.
0: Yeah. If they hadn't kissed, I think it would have, I mean, you could have, if Bruce just like liked her as a person, he liked what she believed in that, you know, she worked with charities that she went through what she did like him. And as they spent more time together, they started to become romantically, you know, romantic thoughts entered their mind. Then it wouldn't be nearly as skeevy, but here, I mean, it plus the way it's like, don't call her Alfred, twiddle my thumbs. Christ. I'll take care of her. And then he, you know, and then he d- wines and dines her, takes her out for ice cream and, you know, lip locks with her in the park. And she's days away from becoming a nun. Okay. You know, it's like, jeez yeah. <laughs> how many things does Bruce Wayne Batman do wrong in this story? All of them, uh, <laughs> all of them. Uh, you know, it's like we, we, you know, and, and we, we were hoping bar would be our sanctuary, wrong-headed Batman over in the Batman title with Collins, but no.
1: (laughs) (sighs) Nope, not so much. I do Uh, like the transition in the next sequence, though.
0: Yeah, that's cool, where Gordon lights his uh, pipe, and Batman's just there in the dark. Yeah, Yeah, that's cool. That's classic. (laughs) It's nice, yeah. How
1: long have you been standing there? 27 (laughs) minutes. What the hell took you so long to refill your pipe?
0: Yeah, (laughs) I was asleep. Sorry, I dozed <laughs> off. I was waiting for you to light your pipe or something. And, and yeah, just, uh, I, how, Oh, I got drool. Sorry. Yes.
1: At least he's not sitting down in a chair, like, like with his leg crossed over his. You know,
0: Gordon lights his pipe. Batman's lounging on the couch. Sup? So, yeah.
1: <laughs> how was your day? Yeah.
0: I it, Jim.. Jim. <laughs> <Yes>.
1: <laughs> we get the insanely yeah. long cape here?
0: Yes, oh, and, and I have to point out, if you look at the uh, what's this like one, two, three, fourth panel, Batman's standing and has got his arms folded. if you recognize this image, you might have seen it elsewhere to promote the Batman film in 1989 as drawn by, supposedly, Bob Kane. There's actually several swipes from Batman Year Two that Kane supposedly drew with the super long Todd McFarlane cape, and I'm pretty damn sure he didn't draw any of them. Yeah, and and uh, it, it could very possibly have been. I, I think it's come out that Greg Thigston, um, who is uh, you know was Kirby's inker a lot in the '80s and does a lot of coloring work in comics as well. I think he even come up with the. Uh, a method uh, the thickstination method of like um uh, scanning pages from old comics for recoloring in um you know trade paperbacks and archives and things um uh, i think he he did some work with kane or for kane or as kane uh so uh but yeah this this batman post here was used on even some products and things like erl diecast cars and
1: yeah i recognized it yeah
0: you know they made us. they of course drew the rest of it they added like probably parts from the cape in the next panel where batman's getting ready to go out the window uh so yeah so this is another another mark against the nail in the coffin of bob kane's legacy <laughs> you need some like, it, like it needed anymore yeah uh but but there you know, I will give although go, you go ahead go i was
1: going to say uh, maybe it's because – I mean this was my era. This was when I was getting in, and I mean we you know make fun of Todd McFarlane for this. Norm Brayfogle does the same thing with the cape. I mean this isn't a trend that's going away anytime soon.
0: No, um, no. And, and I've right always kind of
1: – as as much as it doesn't make any kind of logistical sense, I like it as an affectation that when you get a moody poster shot of Batman – the cape is just absurdly can be absurdly big and too too long and flowy at, at some points. I I kind of think that adds to the mysterioso quality of the character. Um, except on like the cover of this one, where the cape it looks like it's been going through the laundry cycle for forty years. Um, <laughs> but,
3: but
0: yeah, you're right. And I mean, I you know it it is you know. Neil Adams pushed it just a little. Uh, Bernie Wrightson and his few Batman uh, work, like the Swamp Thing issue, pushed it a lot. Mm. I always think about that that shot of Batman with his legs—he's uh, uh, straddling two rooftops, yeah. and the cape's like blowing between his legs. And that's one thing, seven or eight. Which one is that? It's one seven. of the seven. Okay. Seven, okay, yeah. Uh, and and Marshall Rogers. Now he kept it more in proportion, but he did lots of dramatic things with the cape the way the cape flowed over the shoulder and this last shot on this page to me looks very it's like marshall rogers to the extreme it's mm. it's got that that feel to it and of course you know me i'm a sucker for marshall rogers so i, I kind of like it. it it works it's it's one of the things that and it's of course it's one of the things that mcfarland i think he'd already done over on infinity incorporated because he did uh, mr bones over there and he had the cape. And uh, so he brings that here. And, of course, that's the hallmark of uh, Spawn. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he draws the Spider-Man supporting hero slash villain, the Prowler, in Spider-Man, yeah. he gives him the same kind of cape. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So that's that's McFarlane. So, <laughs> um, so what do we think about Batman's meeting with Gordon, though? I mean, what, it's – it's it's so weird that he likes, like, I, I'm going to take down the Reaper, and uh, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do, but you're going to hate me, and you're going to want to hunt me down, and uh, you're going to be dead, but just remember we're bros, okay? You know, it's like... It's, <laughs> it's so
1: weird. Again, this, uh, this, does, this feels like a meeting between them that would have taken place later in their history, not necessarily in year two, um, but I... I like the idea that he says, you know, very soon now you're going to curse my name, order my capture, wish me dead. Against that time, I can only say, I swear to you by the cause, that I love that I am your friend. Like, he's warning Gordon. He's like, I I have to do something that you're not going to like. Please believe me that I've got the best intentions. And I kind of, like, the fact that he goes out and tells him that, I kind of wish Gordon was giving him more of the benefit of the doubt by the end of this chapter. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it doesn't seem like we have that.
0: It's like the they might as well just have not even visited him because it right. didn't do any good. Right. You know, and Gordon doesn't even, I mean, like, he just leaps right to, oh, well, yeah, Batman's, you know, he's not on our side. Screw him. I'm, I'm after him, too, you know. <laughs> so it's like, wow, okay. Uh, then we get the scene at the airport, and this is where we get more McFarlane action, uh, such as it is. Um, <laughs> Batman, you were talking about, <laughs> you were talking about before. The the Reaper, he slices at Batman. He's got the the coveralls on of a luggage attendant at the airport. He makes one swipe, and it's like he just cut through one of those big you know paper hoops like the football players run through, uh, you know those pieces of paper at the, on the football field because that's what it looks like. It's like Batman's uniform is like shredded off of him, like it's made out of tissue paper or it, something. It, but like
1: wet <laughs> wet tissue paper. The fact that it comes off like this, like it's just. Yeah. It, in pieces like there shouldn't be like the, the suit shouldn't come off in like two dozen pieces. If he's just slicing with this big scythe thing one time, (laughs) it's like we needed to get Batman back into his Batman costume as quickly as possible. It's like, dude, this isn't.
0: And then of course, Batman does shoot the the gun out of Gordon's hand, which like my dad always pointed out it's like you know and and we're big fans of lone Ranger. but he's like everybody in the west would have these huge gaping holes in their hands that (laughs) you know you can't shoot somebody with a 45 caliber gun in the hand and not have it like totally damage their hand probably for all time there's just that stuff doesn't work you know so it's like i know we're in a comic book but still it's it's like the way mcfarland draws it it's already out of his hand it's like it's it's almost like the bullets shooting Gordon in the hand and he dropped the gun more than it It looks like it hit the gun and fell out of his hand. But I know that's what it's supposed to do, but,
1: and he's doing it to disarm him. I know that, but you have to think about the fact that Batman has the gun that murdered his parents. Mm -hmm. And the first thing he does with it is shoot at Gordon.
0: His only friend.
1: Mike Barr. What? Why? What are you doing
0: here? Oh, just... uh, yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, I, and plus he just disarmed Gordon when there's a madman with machine guns in his hands running around. It's like that you just left the poor man defenseless.
1: And again, like I thought he was taking out the gun because he was going to shoot the Reaper. I thought he was going to kill him. That's the, that was the whole point of the gun. It's like, why didn't you let the cops do that? They're yeah, authorized cares? to do that.
0: Yeah, who who cares who shoots him as long as he's, yeah, you know, if you're let willing to kill the guy. And, let
1: the cops shoot them. they They're legally allowed to do that. Then you're not on the hook for murder.
0: <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> on the next page, we do get the Reaper slicing off Batman's extra-long cape, which is kind of, you know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> so, and then... I, I double checked every time I read these books. I double checked Yes, there's a comic cr- uh, comic code approval seal on the front of the book, but yet on page 15, the Reaper is literally running his scythe through Hamer's guard with blood gushing out. I mean, yeah. it's going going through his chest, coming out the other side, curving up. I don't know how he ever pulled it out of that guy. That's I the mean, thing. The way-
1: like that's, that, I yeah, that's what I, one of the things I don't like. Like as much as the design for the Reaper is striking, it's like those are not practical. You yeah. can't you can't stab somebody with those weapons.
0: No, yeah, because it's going to get stuck. You're going to like be sitting there like he does later with the wall of the plane, right? Either you're going to be sitting there trying to pop it out of the guy while he's running around. I mean, the cops could just swarm him while he's trying to pull it out of the dude and blow him away. You know. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, then the action gets real murky because suddenly Hamer's on the plane. All we see is a, one of the seats on the plane. Batman kicks the Reaper uh, over inside the plane, and you know we get very little that looks. Plus, this doesn't look like a plane because everything's orange, which is weird. Uh, brown in the background is kind of odd, so I don't know. Maybe Adrian Roy doesn't because the way McFarland drew it, she didn't get okay. They're on the plane. I don't know, but and I didn't get at first that the Reaper's scythe got stuck because there's a panel that shows it going next to Batman's head, sticking in the wall, and it's it's chunked. Yeah. And then there's this panel where a very frightened Hamer is in front of Batman. Batman's on silhouette, and he's basically telling him, come on, Hamer. And it says emergency exit, and then you see Batman and him taking off with the little cart and the luggage racks. But we don't see the Reaper again in that panel with Batman to show us that, oh, it's stuck, and he's trying to get it loose.
1: No, that's not so, until the next page.
0: Yeah, and then the next page, it's like there's so little that you see there. You just see the Reaper like basically with both feet on the wall – you know, I kind of get he's trying to get it loose, but also looks like he's just maybe trying to kick in a door on the other side of the plane or something. You know, it's it's just not – it's just not – I had to go back and read it a couple times to follow what was going on because it's just not well, – like the, it's said, yeah, not well.
1: The staging of this and the way the art depicts makes it seem like nobody in the production of this comic has ever actually been on a plane. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like – like, how much room do you think there are on a commercial passenger plane Right, that you can jump around and do these kind of flips? Like, these chairs are way too spaced apart, and, like, there's, like, just too much room. Like, you have panels where, like, the characters are there, and, like, you see the the seats in the background. It's like, planes aren't that big. You don't have room for this. Like I think right. staging a fight on a plane like this could be really cool, but the art has to show the claustrophobia of it, like that you are just locked in, that like, this would be a good place to show like where how Batman tricks the Reaper into getting here, because the Reaper doesn't have room to swing his blades and everything, that they would get stuck and Batman can get up close because the Reaper just can't move, that he's right. too bunched up. That would be a good tactical thing, but that's not what we're seeing here.
0: Yeah, it's like you know that'd be the perfect spot to show that the Reaper is at a disadvantage because of that heavy armor he's got, yeah. and like you said, the size and and Batman can move around a lot, a lot, especially back before Batman wore armor all over the place, uh, can move around a lot easier uh, in here. It's kind of like the you know scenes in Deadpool when he's flipping in and out of cars, and 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 even the the new Ant Man and the Wasp trailer where yeah, they're you yeah. know. Showing a confined space what they can do, so yeah, this would have been a perfect place for that, but no, it's not because, like you said, it's like this looks like like one of those big, you know, a troop transport planes and some. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, the, the width of the, the 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 body of the plane is ridiculous. Uh, yeah. The depth of it, it's yeah. And then and then and then, <laughs> and, and then he shoots what apparently is the fuel tank, and they're not all dead somehow.
1: <laughs> like yeah, what does he shoot that explode? It says fuel, but like yeah it like explodes and then like at least in mine it's just then there's just a panel of him of the reaper in it looks like a poster shot or it's just like a character profile shot with him and it's just all black and it's like is that supposed to signify his escape or something and then gordon and the cops are standing there It looks like they're outside the plane and he's admonishing them for their poor performance and everything but it's like what exploded where are they
0: yeah what what well, how's the plane not like totally shredded? I mean, it looks like the door's open the little the little ladders down, the little steps are down um you know, and like you said, the reaper's just he's running against a before that he's running on a black background with slish, yeah, he's got the slish again, and it's uh, yeah, it's really not drawn coherently, yeah, it's just the storytelling is just not there um. Uh, on the other hand, the the panels up on the next page where where Gordon like breaks his pipe, you know, I, I'm with you. I, I hate that he went ahead and jumped to that as if Batman didn't even you know come and visit him. But uh, that's a really nicely done set of panels there because it it's a one of the few places where I feel like the art's kind of meshing together in an interesting way for me. The no.
1: inking especially feels much heavier on these pa- on these pages, um, mm-hmm. even even on the the preceding page when it's the close up of the reaper's face when he's like shooting at whatever he's shooting at, like his mask doesn't look like it's a piece of armored mask that look like it looks like kind of like like leathery skin like a mm-hmm. like something yeah but, um, but yeah these pages with Gordon and with the light of the of the pipe and everything and like the heavy shadow. Um, that's, that's at least something kind of like interesting, a little bit more Alcala like and, and
0: yeah, it doesn't look like McFarland, but it's still, it looks good, you know? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we get to the gangster meeting. And for some reason, McFarland drew all the gangsters looking like they're men from the 1940s. <laughs> I, <laughs> Morgan Jones looks like FDR. Uh, <laughs> I wish we had Rob here to do his FDR impression when he's reading Jones's dialogue that'd been good. Uh but uh yeah and you know Galonka earlier had a monocle which yeah I know the penguin does but how many other people have a monocle so you know it's like okay that's that's interesting um and uh, we get the mysterious um white-haired man in the uh jaunty cabbie hat or whatever you call that type of cap I don't know what you what what what, what do you call that cap officially I never have really Knowing what you call that, uh, um, like an old school golf cap or,
1: yeah, gosh, uh,
0: I don't know what you call it, but Joe Chill's always wearing it. So, you know, <laughs> pretty much every version we see of him in the comics, he's got that hat on. So, um, can't. Like, I,
1: not, I can't think of the name
0: of it. I can't either. I never, I don't know if I ever even knew it. It's, um, uh, but you guys know what we're talking about. Uh, but yeah, he's got the same kind of hat on and, uh. Then Batman just drops Hamer into the middle of their table, shows up and it's surprising that the mobsters don't just instantly perforate him, uh, you know, but uh, apparently they don't. Um, Batman uses his little batarangs to disarm them as he's making this deal with them. Um, and I'm with you, it's like where did this part of the story come in? It's like, why does he need to make allies with the mob and after year 1 this just like seems like he's built this reputation up for the last year and now because one nut job come to town he's like throwing in with the mob you know it's like you just killed all your cred dude you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this besides the moral implications of you know working with the mob it's like what what has the re- I know the Reapers like you know he's killed he's killed people obviously he's killed cops which is horrible and he's killed you know uh, you know and everything but he's uh, you gotta assume Batman's had other enemies he's fought in the year you know in in between year one and year two so why is the Reaper it's nothing personal at this point why is he so you know hell bent on like destroying his whole way of doing things just to catch this guy, other than because he's the villain of the story.
1: Yeah, that's you know? the thing. Like now it, it feels like for one thing, for for Batman to take out the gun, the gun that killed mm-hmm. his parents, he's going to change his tech. Now he's working with the criminals. He's going to work with the man who murdered it's like it seems like Barr is putting Batman in these positions where he has to compromise everything he believes in. All of these moral truths, all of these lines that he swore he never crossed Batman has to compromise all of this in order but it's like the Reaper is not worth it at this point. We have not established that he is to that point like this could be a Joker story. Like, you know, like this is like if you think of like the Dark Knight where like the Joker says you're gonna break tonight, you're gonna break your one rule. It's like that's that's the point where he keeps testing him. He keeps pushing him. Like we need a villain who can do that over a length of time who just won't go away and won't end in such a threat to everybody that Batman has to keep compromising and compromising until he reaches the point where he won't break. But the Reaper, uh, sorry, Mike, you haven't built him up that that well yet. He's not there Bruce. yet. Because Bruce started this after one confrontation between them. And
0: Yeah. That's like he instantly had this plan of okay, I'm going to use my parents' gun, which I I've never used guns. Plus, I'm going to use my the, the gun that killed my parents. I'm going to uh, tick off my best my 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 best friend and ally that I've got that'll help me in my war against crime. And I'm also going to actually join the people that I'm trying to stop just to get this one guy. I mean, when you say it out loud like that, it just completely falls apart <laughs> because yeah. it does it doesn't make a lot of sense. And and like if the Reaper had made it his personal mission to teach batman like okay if you're going to take over my job i'm going to show you how you need to do it almost like when they did that uh when they introduced the new zoom in the flash when jeff johns and scott collins were doing the flash and he basically made wally west's life a living hell and it's like okay i'm going to show you how to be a better a better flash because you let me get you know you let what happened to me happen to me and blah 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 and all that stuff. So if, you know, if if the Reaper had like this sick fascination with Batman and was like basically putting him through the paces and making it personal, then I could kind of see him going to more extremes, but he's just another villain he run up against. Yeah. As you know, aside from being the villain of this story, what's so special about him that it's different than the other, you know, criminals he fights. So
1: In some ways it feels like maybe Barb was trying to do this, and I I, I kind of wish he might have, I wish he would have kind of hewed closer to this, but it seems like this is like a, a revised version of the story that you actually mentioned, the player on the other side,
0: mm, um, yeah. and the
1: wrath, but like that one just, that, the execution of that was so much better. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I mean, there are elements about the story that I like, but I, I still think like if we had just... You know, if if that had been the case, if we had gotten like a version of the Wrath or the Reaper or whatever who had that origin and kind of approached it like you were saying, was trying to tell Batman and convince Batman, "No, my way is right. You're too soft. You're you're letting them go. They need to be killed," and attacked him at at more of a philosophical level, Mm -hmm. um, which you kind of get like Rachel Ghoul's argument in Batman Begins. Yeah. Um, I mean, there. I mean, which again, these are more successful, better-told stories um, than than what we're dealing with here. And I think if you look at the the sophistication of that, you'll see why those succeed and why they're interesting in the way that they challenge Batman. Whereas this one, it's like you want to show him compromise, but it's there's no reason for it. it. It's just it's not worth it. You haven't
0: earned it. Right. Yeah. And then of course we get Joe Chill and uh as as a kid when I read this I said, Oh, okay, they're they're like redoing that story and and loosely, very loosely, but that story from the, the origin of the Batman from Batman number forty seven, which is uh, June, July nineteen forty eight, and I read that in the Untold Legend of Batman, you know, where where Batman meets Joe Chill and eventually confronts him with who he is and so I'm like, Oh, okay. So even then, I'm like, okay. eventually we're probably going to get to that point in this story. And uh, but of course, Barr's taking it to a totally different extreme where they're going to have to work together, uh, which is like I, I mean, I understand. I understand the desire for that that uncomfortable alliance that Batman must make with chill. But there's so many other things that he does along the way that yeah, I think it could have been done in a different way that didn't compromise the character of Batman nearly as much. And you still would have got the same, the, the, actually it would have been better because you wouldn't have been on the, the, the wrong foot with Batman in this story. Like everything you're doing is wrong. You know, it's like, you, you're not, <laughs> you're, you're not thinking this through Batman, Bruce, come on. You know, it's, it's like, if he just, you know, like uh, Joe chill was the one guy that had that knew the, knew of the Reaper had went, come up against him in, in the past. and, and knew something about him, and Batman had to work with him or something. And you know, Chill was like just you know playing with him and leading him along, so so dragging things out. So Batman was forced to keep dealing with him. You know that could have worked, and you wouldn't have had Batman that you know had compromised to to work with the mob that had you know betrayed Gordon, and you know you still would have probably had a Batman that was hitting on a nun. But you know it's.
1: it's... <laughs> no, I was actually just thinking, you know, I, I kind of like the idea of like we, drop the romantic angle and just having Batman with a confidant who is a nun, just like somebody that you can kind of go to and talk to. is kind of interesting. And I was like, eh, maybe that's more of a daredevil thing. It's daredevil, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Say, that's,
0: it's daredevil. That's the especially like the Netflix series, yeah, The priest, the, the, yeah, father, but
1: like even like <laughs>
0: yeah, later on,
1: like yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, yeah, it's I I can't. I can't, uh, you know, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse. I mean, I I remembered liking this story better than I like it now, mm-hmm. uh, reading it for this, and I hate that. But it's, it's just, and I've really, really, really enjoyed Mike W. Barr's run. I enjoyed his story. I enjoy his comic work overall. I just don't think this is as strong of a story as... I thought it was as, and I mean, it's, it's history's a little, I mean, it's place in bad history's a little murky because it was kind of disowned fairly quickly. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there, there wasn't a lot of reference to it. It was kind of just kind of glossed over. It was, it was in print as a trade paperback for a while, but then out of print for a long, long time. Um, so it's, it's, it's not exactly, although they did, they do do a sequel to it later, uh, with, with Alan Davis coming back. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, Yeah, it's um, it's it's unfortunate. But this one, you know, at the end of the last one, I'm like, I'm with you. It was kind of like, ah, nobody. He jumped to that gun off. He jumped the gun literally really (laughs) quick. And now he's doing all sorts of wrongheaded things in this one that just don't seem like he's not been pushed to the extreme enough to go to these extremes. It just doesn't add up. So, So we got anything else to say about this one?
1: No, I mean, we've got two more issues of this run to cover, but where we're going to talk about, I, I think we're going to repeat a lot of the same sentiments. Um, so I think we'll save more of that for now and, and kind of move on.
0: Okay. Sounds good. So we'll take a quick break and we come back. We'll cover your listener feedback on the last episode. Hi, I'm John Wilson. And I'm Michael Kaiser. And we're the hosts of the podcast,
3: Make Ours Marvel. You know, here we are in 2018 Ten years into the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Yeah. Can you believe we live in a world where everyone's old Aunt Petunia knows who Iron Man is? It's crazy, right? So, to celebrate, we're on our mission to explore the roots of the Marvel Universe. You know you've thought about it. Some of you may have even done it. And now we're going to do it, too. We're diving back into the long boxes of Marvel's history and podcasting our way through the whole universe. All of it. Every superhero issue. And, if I can convince Mike, we'll even do Sgt. Fury. And it's not going to be one issue per episode. That'd take forever. (laughs) It's still going to take forever. But no, we're going to talk about as many comics as we can in an hour. Yep, an hour and, you know, maybe a little change. Every week, Marvel Comics. So it'd be super cool if you came along for the ride. Look for us every Friday at MakeOursMarvel.com. That's MakeOursMarvel.com. Or on iTunes and all the other usual podcasty places. And if you want to read along with us and send us your thoughts, we might even read emails. So until Avengers Infinity War
0: gets a spin-off Warlock and the Infinity Watch TV show, make
3: ours ours Marvel.
0: Last episode, we reviewed Batman number 409, which continued the post-crisis retcon of Jason Todd's origin in a totally satisfying and sophisticated story (laughs) that everyone could love. And monkeys flew out of my butt. So many (laughs) listeners had opinions to share about this story. Looking at the comments we received on the Fire & Water Network website, that's fireandwaterpodcast.com, our first comment came from Santarin, who said, I'm going to be much more generous than this comic deserves and say, maybe they were alluding to Robin on the cover with the yellow being the same as his cape. Okay, well, we'll go with that. (laughs) Uh, I'm
1: fine with that. Yeah, sure. Sure. Okay. Uh, Dan Doherty said, I never realized how much post-crisis Jason Todd's origin resembled the kids from Dick Tracy, but it makes sense when you remember that Max Allen Collins wrote the Dick Tracy comic strip from 1977 to 1993. Uh, yeah, you mentioned that, and I, I hadn't even thought about it too, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, it seems like he was, he was redoing the kids' origin when he was writing this new, this new Robin one. Uh, and then apparently, our discussion of Dick Tracy in general on the last episode inspired Siskoy to finally watch the movie, which I don't, I can't imagine anybody from our community hasn't seen Dick Tracy. But yeah, that's that's a good one.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Rob Kelly wrote in to say I agree that the cover is a bit awkward. I like the bright yellow background and the lack of copy, sort of posterish. If you can forget the old lady in the corner. By the way, why was the book subtitled The New Adventures During This Run? It's not like the book featured reprints leading up to this or anything. Were readers concerned about this? I guess the only reason this is Chris cutting in here. I guess the only reason was that, you know, that was the previous issues had been year one and that was like the first time that they'd ever dropped a mini series into a regular series of a comic. Maybe that's why, you know. So
1: Yeah, I've actually I've never I've never thought about it, but yeah. Uh, Mark Lacks said he started reading Batman comics in 1983 when Jason had been established, and he liked the kid as Robin. After year one, Mark continues, not so much. <laughs> can't, can't imagine why. <laughs> they, they randomly changed his origin without much explanation, doing a whole 180 on the character making this likable kid into a street punk. For me, the character's fate was all but sealed after this change. Now, I wasn't one of the fans who called and voted for the kid's death. That whole thing was morbid and unnecessary, because at this point, we knew they were going to dump the character. They didn't have to have him walk off into the sunset with his mom, but that brutal beating and the explosion was too much. All because people wanted a lone Dark night vigilante. Of course, that only lasted maybe two years until Tim Drake came along. I, too, liked Tim better than Jason, but that was no reason to end the character so violently. Yes, it gave Batman something to brood about, but he got a new Robin anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it did. It became, you know it Jason's function for many years was to be Batman's biggest mistake, you yeah. know, and now now he's a red hood. So I don't know. I don't, I don't even know how to reconcile all that sometimes. But. Yeah. Uh, Martin gray agreed with Mark's point and added that Batman was totally irresponsible to ever take on another Robin after Jason's death. I'd argue this is the point at which the Batman we knew became a nutter. Martin said, Tim can make all the arguments he wants about Batman being a Robin, but he may as well have written a suicide note.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a little harsh. Again, this we, we, we always have to straddle the line of suspension of disbelief when we're talking about these, these comics. And and Batman is one of those ones that, because he's human people want to dramatize and and take literally. And that gets dangerous. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a thing of serialized fiction too. It's like, Right. And it didn't help that they kept, you know, kept bringing up Jason as, you know, Batman's mistake. But like any kind of serialized fiction, like I've been binge watching Dark Shadows. At this point, I've watched probably about three hundred episodes. Everybody in that house should be insane, and if they're not insane, get the hell out of that house and burn it to the ground. You know, it's, like, it's just the same thing like Batman. It's like don't adopt any more kids. Don't get any more partners. You know. <laughs>
1: You're way ahead of me. I haven't. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, think I, I think I got through like 50 of them. And ah, uh, gosh, what was the last storyline? Barnabas turned what's her name into like the like brainwashed turned into thinking she's Gisette. Oh, and, um yeah. God, what's the little kid? Oh, David. David, yeah, David went up and saw her and met her and like thinks that she's he's uh, she's Gisette like brought back. So
0: the ghost, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm I'm into the uh, the Adam storyline, the Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, Ward Hill Terry said, It struck me as I was listening that this is an example of a comic story written by someone who doesn't write comics. Yes, Collins wrote comic strips, but that is a different kind of pacing. This is a feeling I've had when comics characters have been adapted to other media. The effect of the Batman TV show continues to reverberate after 50 years, but that wasn't the first. Too often, I've wondered, haven't these people ever read the comic? This story could be almost any character, i.e., Dick Tracy instead of Batman. However, it's a Batman. However, it is Batman. So throw in the Batmobile and Commissioner Gordon, and voila, it's a Batman story.
0: Yeah, that yeah. was kind of my point. Yeah, at the end, it's just like yeah, reading it this time, it jumped out. Yeah, this could be Dick Tracy or anybody. <laughs>
1: Certainly not the world's greatest detective, but...
0: Right. (laughs) Uh, Jimmy McGlinchey said, Even with such poor material, Chris and Ryan knocked it out of the park when it came to presenting a great podcast. Kudos to both of you. Looking forward to having more Nightcast turning up. Well, here it is, and (laughs) the song's not quite as as bad, but it, it remains... It remains the same in a lot of ways, unfortunately. So,
1: <laughs> This is your last episode of 2018, by the way. <laughs> uh, David Ace Scutierrez said, for reasons I can't explain, I was a fan of Jason Todd. Maybe because when I started reading Batman, the Dick Grayson Robin was more of a Titan than a partner of Batman. And here was an opportunity to see a nascent, rough-around-the-edges Robin come of age. I had just missed the pre-crisis JT Robin. In fact, But I agree with you both. His origin is a total mess. And then a few comments later, David came back uh, to talk about Tim Drake. I was wondering if Tim Drake is the Robin you get if you focus grouped what people want in a sidekick. You can say Jason was initially a clone of and then a reaction against Dick Grayson. When it was clear that people hated the character enough to kill him, I can't help but wonder if the third version of Robin became a wish fulfillment. He never has aspirations to replace or better his mentor. He never wrongs anyone. He stays the course. He's the safe choice. The guy someone dates after the bad boy breaks their heart. The, dare I say it, Paul Rudd of Robbins. Nobody really <laughs> hates Paul Rudd, but nobody hates oatmeal either. <laughs> yes, Tim Drake turned out to be a good character. He carried his own series for a while, had some action figures, and even made it into video games. Good character. Good character. But is he a great one? Sometimes I wonder if Tim was the apology Robin.
0: I hate to say this, but I, he does have a point because I think O'Neill even said at the time we got it right this time. I mean, yeah. they they went out of their way to create a Robin that would be liked that that everyone would accept, and to me, that's not a bad thing because you know you. I mean, I. I I think they needed that at that point. They needed a viable character that could people could accept as Robin. You know, yeah, maybe Tim's a little too perfect for some people's taste, but the character worked in the stories and at the time, and I think he still works, but, and plus you can't, you know, the Paul Rudd analogy because, you know, David hates Ant-Man <laughs> irrationally. So I don't you know. So. I, I think
1: I, I think his comments about Robin as a sidekick are are fairly true and fairly consistent, but I think that only takes it up to some point. I do think that shortchanges uh, what what Tim Drake meant and like how popular he became because the fact mm-hmm. that he did have his own series for over a hundred issues, yeah, like he he. That maybe that explains like what their thinking was when they started and kind of his genesis and his creation, but you need to have a little something more than that to be able to sustain your own series for that long uh, yeah. and to be a popular character where some people like him more than they like Batman. A lot of people probably like Tim Drake more than they like
0: Batman. Yeah, um, yeah, and and like you said, it's it's like the character. It's not like a totally different character, but. The character that, like Marv Wolfman and and George Perez introduced in The Lonely Place of Dying, you know Chuck Dixon took that character and evolved him yeah. into what people really like the Tim Drake that people really remember. And you know it's 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 not a to like I said, it's not a totally different character, but that that's what I consider. I mean, I, you know, I, I know it's it's almost like a, a case of, uh, and of course nothing against Len Wein, it's almost like you you think of Cl- Chris Claremont in the new X-Men, even though he didn't really create them, you know? Right, uh, right. So it's it's kind of the same thing there. It's like Chuck Dixon didn't create Tim Drake, but he might as well have, because he's the one that right. put the flesh on the bones, you know? Right. So
1: Claremont didn't create Wolverine, but everything that people know and like about Wolverine came from Claremont.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So. yeah. Uh, Ed O'Bosnar Bosnar said, Can't comment much on the meat of the episode, as I've never read this issue, but I have to mention... The part when you guys brought up the topic of bad comic shop experiences came up, and Chris mentioned a place called the Comic Connection with an obnoxious baseball card guy. It really struck a chord. Back in the late 1980s, when I was living in Sunnyvale, California, there was a local comic shop called John's Comic Connection, and the John who ran it was this rather stout fellow who was mainly into baseball cards. The only difference was he did also like and read comics, but he could be quite vocal about stuff he didn't like in conversations with customers. He was most definitely not a fan of Sinkovich's art. Otherwise, well, I wasn't over Jim Apparel, but otherwise, it's okay. <laughs> otherwise, there was another comic shop about a 10 minute walk away that was run by an aging, surly hippie who often berated the state of modern comics and belittled any of his customers who may have disagreed with him. The comic book guy in The Simpsons is like a perfect mashup of those two guys. <laughs> I can see those two guys. You did a really good job there, you know, of, of painting the picture of those two guys. I can see them right now. So. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think Rob Kelly also said he liked your impression of your comic book store owner who didn't who or the baseball guy who didn't like them.
0: I'm strictly baseball. I do not know anything about comic books. I do not know how much that poster is. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, uh, our buddy paul hicks said great to have the show back in the feed even if it is reviewing this piece of crap those ads are cool
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh that's funny uh trey hooks popped in to recommend the silver surfer epic collection volume three which collects the Inglehart rogers run on silver surfer he says this was one of the few marvel titles not x-related that i collected at the time it isn't getting a lot of attention in the MCU build-up, which is a shame. It doesn't feature the Infinity Gauntlet or Thanos, and it wasn't the first appearance of the Elders of the Universe, but it was where they were presented as conspiratorial brotherhood for the first time. It was the first time the Infinity Gems were viewed as a thing together, and the first time Mantis became a player in the Marvel comic storylines, which Steve Englehart is obsessed with his character Mantis, so that doesn't surprise me. He even <laughs> tried to... He took her to other comic companies and like basically made up a new version of her. It's like wow. Okay. So <laughs> well,
1: that's I, cool. I, I, I wonder how he I, feels I, about her depiction in the, uh, in the guardians of the galaxy and Avengers movies.
0: Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I, I, it's a totally, it's basically the same character with a, it's a basically character in name only yeah, basically. Yeah. Cause she's like, she is not this serene, pleasant, mm. you know, childlike character that she is in the, the guardians in the infinity war movie. She's, She's quite, you know. She's the one that always speaks in this one. This uh, the guys over at uh, uh, Avenger Spotlight, Back to the bands have been covering the, the celestial, celestial Madonna. Madonna
1: story. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And it's like the all the all the uh, uh, this one says this, and this one says that, and it's like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But yeah, I'll have to check that out. Any, any Marshall Rogers, I'm down for.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, our buddy the irredeemable shag said, Just a thought. If these issues continue to disappoint, perhaps leap forward to comics you do enjoy. You don't have to be a slave to the index format. You started this show because you love the post crisis Batman, and it's beginning to sound like not this era so much. Find your joy. If you can't find the spirit, jump forward to the Grant Brayfogle stuff. You don't like bagging on the stories, so find some that make you happy. Your enthusiasm will pour through the microphone, and your listeners will feel the joy, too. Just my two cents, or maybe just my really giant bat cave-sized one cent. (laughs)
0: 1947. (laughs)
1: uh, Shag, we're going to do a slightly different tactic. Instead of jumping ahead to the stories we we like, we're gonna stick with the stories that we don't like, and we're gonna do twice as many of them per episode. (laughs) (laughs) So, so peeking behind the curtain, um, the next episode of this show we're gonna hit Batman Annual number
0: eleven. Eleven. Yeah. Yeah. Eleven. Batman
1: Annual number eleven, which has two stories in it. And then after that, we are going to try and hit an issue of Batman and an issue of Detective in the same episode. So we might be able to scoot through the Collins and and the year two runs a little bit quicker. And and hopefully we'll be able to do that and and give you guys twice as much content um, (laughs) for better or worse. Um, But then we can actually stick to the index and we can get to the good stuff a little bit quicker.
0: Yeah, and I and I kind of want to get through this stuff. And the guys on the fantastic cast said this too. It's like getting through this stuff; it makes the good stuff even you appreciate it even more because it's like, oh, thank goodness, you know, now we're into some really good stuff. And and we have found, I mean, like this issue, there are some positive things to say about it, you know. And and uh, even though it's you know not living up to the rest of the bar run for us, but you know it's it, it, you know i i think moving forward i'm just going to keep the we don't like to bag on it we're just going to be honest about it right. uh, i think people know by now we don't want to go in bagging on something if we bag on something we feel like it deserves to be bagged on you know right. right so so but yeah but we'll you know we'll we'll make it through and and we'll see the light at the end of the tunnel and hopefully it's not the batman subway rocket you know from the <laughs> nightfall era coming at us you know so <laughs> Uh, J. David Weeder said As to Bruce reviewing Catherine Todd's records This was before the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996 HIPAA So medical information wasn't readily available But wasn't guarded as fiercely as it is today And Jason's mom did die of cancer At least according to a death in the family Not sure why this was changed here Except Denny was asleep at the wheel Maybe he was dealing with the Allen Davis drama And missed that detail <laughs> <laughs> well you said that, you thought, wait a minute, did she you know? Yeah, like, when
1: she says she died of an overdose, I was like, I don't think that's what we saw last time.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: I, I still don't feel like going back to the issue of confirming that. <laughs> I'm just taking
0: No, it. <laughs> no.
1: I'm gonna take I'm gonna take Dave's word for that. Yeah. yeah. Uh yeah, that was it for the comments that we got on the website. Uh we got through those a little bit quicker because we were cherry picking more, which as we as we do more. Uh, issues to cover every episode we're probably gonna have to cherry pick our feedback a little bit more Um, but we did also receive an email after the last episode from michael staley not michael bailey michael staley uh, who writes hey guys i got introduced to this podcast just recently so the five month gap only ended up lasting about two weeks for me hey lucky you
0: We planned it that way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I remember first learning about Jason Todd through the Batman role-playing reference guide by Mike Stackpole. I can understand the Dick Grayson clone idea, though I do think having Jason as a circus performer whose parents were killed by Croc could have worked. Maybe just some tweaks to his personality and backstory so it's not as similar to Dick's origin. The new origin also could have potentially worked if done differently. The street-tough kid could have made a decent contrast to Dick. But the way it was written combined with a generally poor story really, as you said, set him up to fail. Yeah, I mean that was kind of the points that we kept coming back to. Is I I liked their idea of trying to differentiate him more from Dick and the circus background, but they just didn't do it well. Like the the pre-crisis Jason Todd was maybe a bad idea done really, really well, and this one was perhaps a better idea done really, really poorly.
0: Right. Uh,
1: Uh, Mike continues even after returning Jason's still getting screwed the idea of him as a complete recurring villain could have done a lot Batman's partner who knows all his secrets and techniques as a nemesis could have led to some interesting stories instead he's turned into an anti-hero and now he's kind of back to being part of the Bat family seems like a waste looking forward to hearing the next episode pretty soon I'll be joining you guys with my own Bat related podcast until next time, Mike Staley.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: Cool. Well, keep us posted about your uh, Batman podcast. Yeah, let and us know. We'll, let us know and we'll plug it here. So, cool. Sounds good. Always room for more people in their Batman phase. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I guess that'll about do it, right? Yeah. Like
1: I said, uh, the next episode, which hopefully our, our plan is to get these out more regularly than they have been this calendar year. Um which so uh, it might be every it might not be every two weeks but every three or four at least um, we're mm-hmm. gonna shoot for um, and, and we'll see how well we do but yeah next episode when it comes out we'll cover Batman Annual number eleven which has a Clayface story written by Alan Moore which mm-hmm. was like that because that one was edited by um, Len Wein Len right mean.
0: yeah um, yeah I was leftover from the previous administration I guess yeah, yeah. It's like an
1: inventory. Um, but then the second story in that is a Max Allen Collins story, but it also features the first published Batman work of Norm freaking Rayfogle.
0: Yay! So. <laughs> All right, guys, until then. Bye. Come out, Virginia.
4: Don't let wait. If you Catholic girl start much too late. the sooner or later, it comes down to fate. I might as well be the one. Well, they showed you a statue, told you to pray. They built you a temple and locked you away. Ah, oh, but they never told you the price that you pay for things that you might have done. Well, only. Behind. In the sun. Darling, only the good die.
0: Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at supermatespod or email me at supermatespodcast at gmail.com.
1: You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening.
4: It's better, but I said I'd rather laugh with the sinners Than cry with the saints The sinners are much more fun You know that only the good die
1: Sorry, a, it's okay. a neighbor just walked by, like with the little girl, and they might have like a new puppy or something. So, I walked by, and my dogs are freaking out, barking at their puppy. And but the neighbor just kind of like stops and looks. It's like, hey, look, other dogs. And it's like, this is cute. It's like, yeah, go the hell away. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is we can have them play around later, but right now I'm recording
0: kn- a podcast. Don't yeah. you about, yeah. about man. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: You're embarrassing me in front of Chris Franklin. Do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Chris Franklin. Oh, wow. oh, I'm sorry. We'll move along. Of the Kentucky Franklins. Goddamn <laughs> the Kentucky Franklins.
0: <laughs> hey, my sister's been digging into our our family tree and found out we have all these crazy connections to King Henry the Eighth and George Washington and all. I mean, it's crazy. It's uh. like. Yeah, it's like, well, how the hell did we end up poor? (laughs) That's what my dad asked. What the hell happened? (laughs) You know, so...